get things started here this morning, turn to uh, Ezekiel chapter 39. We are going to uh, try to close out our uh, little study of, uh, of Gog and Magog here uh, that we've been doing. This will be the third week on it. Uh, and then next week, um, if we get everything done today, next week we will move into uh, Revelation uh, chapter 17. We'll go back to Revelation next week, uh, and we'll look at the first six verses of Revelation 17 next week. Um, just as, as far as introduction to chapter 39, in many ways, chapter 39 of Ezekiel restates what we saw in chapter 38. It's a very common thing that happens in Scripture, where one passage uh, will we'll kind of state something, and then a following passage will restate it and often give more detail. And that's what we see basically in chapter 39 here, is a restating of chapter 38, but with more detail. Um, we are going to see something interesting here, though. Remember back a few weeks ago when we you know, first kind of started talking about this, we talked about the, the, the timing of the battle that takes place uh, in chapters 38 and 39, and the different views of that. Like, does it happen before the tribulation? Does it happen, you know, in the middle of the tribulation? And, and you know, we, we kind of looked at the, the strengths and weaknesses of all the different views, and really that there's no view that is perfect. They all have some problems to them. Uh, and so we really talked about the, the kind of the last three views that we discussed were probably the strongest of the three, and, and one is that this battle that takes place here is the same as the Battle of Armageddon, okay? That's, you know, one of the, the most common views, uh, you know, in, in, in the study of end times, that, you know, the Gog and Magog battle is the same as Armageddon. We also looked at another view that it is the same as the battle that takes place after the millennium, when, when Satan is is loosed and he goes out to deceive the nations and it specifically says in in chapter 20 of revelation that this is connected to gog and magog so that's probably the strongest single evidence that we have because you know the the actual name is is used the 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 name in the in the uh, country the region is used but there's also a a kind of a third view that's a combination of those two and that's that you know, the, the Gog and Magog passages in Ezekiel are referring to both the Battle of Armageddon, kind of like that was the start of Satan's campaign to overthrow God. God defeats him, and then there's a thousand-year millennium, millennium in between, and then Satan is, is released, and he starts the battle up again. And really, the Gog and Magog passages are a reference to both of those things. Uh, and, and that is a, uh, another position that's held by a number of, of, uh, of both Old and New Testament scholars that they are really kind of referring to both things. We're going to see today uh, part of the reason why they connect it to the Battle of Armageddon. Last week, if all we did was study chapter 38, you would really get the feeling, man, that's really connected to the period after the millennium. Today, you'll get you know, kind of the reason that scholars also connect it to Armageddon, because some of the language that's used here is used directly in Armageddon. So again, I, I think we're going to see that there is some 
some fairly strong uh, support for that kind of combined position that, you know, that what is being talked about here in Ezekiel then kind of takes place in the future, and we see it in Revelation in both the Battle of Armageddon and then later on at the end of the millennium. Um, so we'll talk about some of those things also today when, when, when we get there. Um, basically, uh, you know, again, as we talked a couple weeks ago, a two-part battle, just similar to what World War I and World War II were. You know, the events take place in one, it ends, but things really aren't settled. And then a period of time later, it begins again, uh, on, and in that second time, things are finally settled. So that's kind of like, you know, what, what the po- one of the possibilities here. So let's begin by looking at verses 1 through 8 of Ezekiel chapter 39. Now, our, our first real kind of um, dialogue here uh, in Ezekiel is actually verses 1 through 16, but I want to kind of break it down into two, two parts just to handle it a little, a little easier. So let's look at verses 1 through 8. It says, Son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, I will turn you around and drag you along. I will bring, uh, bring you from the far north and send you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand and make your arrows drop from your right hand. On the mountains of Israel you will fall, you and all your troops and the nations with you. I will give you as food to all kinds of carrion birds and to the wild animals. You will f- you'll fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord." I will send fire on, on Magog and on those who live uh, in safety in the coastlands, and they will know that I am the Lord. I will make known my holy name among my people Israel. I will no longer let my holy name be profaned, and the nations will know that I, the Lord, am the Holy One in Israel. It is coming. It will surely take place, declares the Sovereign Lord. This is the day I have spoken of. All right, so let's take a look at the first part of this oracle here. Um, notice the similarity right away between chapters 38 and 39. Like I said, it's largely restating the same thing except giving more detail. Turn back over to chapter 38 and look at verses uh, 2 through, uh, through the first part of verse 4. Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Prophesy against him and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and bring you out with your whole army. Again, if we jump over to chapter 39 in verses 1 and 2, it says almost exactly the same thing. Son of man, prophesy against Gog and say this. uh, uh, This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. I will turn you around and drag you along I will bring you from the far north and send you against the mountains of Israel. Yes. Well, Rosh is actually a, uh, it's a translation of one of the words that is used in some translations, but not in, in all. In fact, most Old Testament scholars don't like that translation. It, it should, they, they, they feel it shouldn't be translated Rosh. Um, and, and, and so uh, it's one of the possibilities for what Meshach and Tubal 
are, are talking about, but it's, it's not a very favored translation. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yep. Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, we don't know exactly how they viewed it, but they almost surely thought it was coming much sooner than what like, what we see it as. Now, I, it does make it clear that this is these are future things. It he does seem to very much be looking at a future time. Uh, in the passages leading up to this, like especially like chapters 32 through 37, it, it seems to be much more you know contemporary to the time. But then when you get to this point, he does seem to take a more distant view. Uh, and so I think they probably understood this was something that was coming down the line. Now, how far down the line it was coming, uh, it's it's pretty hard to tell exactly what they thought. I'm sure it was varied. In some ways, it would be very similar to how we look at end times things as far as revelation. You know, we read those things, and, and like I had mentioned, you know, earlier, I mean, growing up in, in a very conservative, you know, churches, I, I mean, I heard my whole life, oh, I mean, Christ, oh yeah, Christ is coming any time now. You know, I remember people, oh, it's going to happen before I die. I know it's going to happen before I die, and all those people died, and it didn't happen. You know, and, and it, it taught me a lesson to never be one who's going to say, oh man, it has to happen any time now. It doesn't. God's timing is God's timing, and we should, you know, be humble enough to just realize it's, it, you know, God's the only one who really knows the timetable of this. Um, but I think they were probably a little bit like we are. You know, we tend to see our own events that are taking place, and plus he's writing, Ezekiel's writing to exile. You know, it, it, it's, it's interesting that we see the events going on in the world today with re Ukraine and the exiles. You know, he is writing to exiles. You know, Israel is in exile right now. Uh, and so I'm sure they were like looking at their own events and, and, and at very least saying, oh, Lord, I hope this comes quick. You know, I hope Gog is, you know, Babylon or, well, by the end, Persia. And man, God, come and take care of all of them. Um, so my guess is, and it's only a guess, but my guess is they, they probably thought it was much more short-term than way, way in the distance. Turns out it was not. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I, I think people are kind of people no matter what. And, and we have that tendency to want to see the events of Scripture in our own time and in our own circumstances. But we have to be very careful because... When we do that, we usually make interpretive mistakes, uh, you know, by trying to kind of pigeonhole our uh, our newspapers, you know, or, or our news feeds into what what the Bible says. But yeah, great question. Um, you can see very clearly that that chapter thirty nine is a restatement of chapter thirty eight, 
but it does start giving slightly more detail. You know, and, and we kind of pick that up as, as we move on. Uh, notice, like, for instance, he talks here in 39 about bows and arrows. That's never mentioned in, in 38. In 38, he talks about swords, but here now he talks about bow and arrows. Now, you know, that, that's not necessarily a, an earth-shaking, you know, thing here. But it's interesting that, that the bow was always considered in the ancient world as, as a very frightening, you know, weapon. Uh, yeah, think of it this way. If you use a sword, how close do you have to get to use a sword? You know, I mean, unless that's one big honking sword, Dale's pretty safe right where he's at if I have a sword, unless I advance on him. But a bow? You can use a bow from long distance. You can use a bow while you're riding a horse. You know, if, if you're good at it, and, and, and that was a, a weapon for some of the, the greatest conquerors in the history of, of, of the human race was the use of the bow. Just think of the Mongols. They were expert bowmen while riding horses. You know, the, 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 the English at the Battle of Agincourt, it was won by their longbowmen, essentially. You know, and, and so the bow was always a frightening instrument. We, when we think of it, it seems so antiquated. And we think, well, I'd rather have the sword. That's scarier than the bow, but not necessarily to the ancient world. That was, you know, like kind of reaching out and touching somebody at a distance. And so it, it's interesting that he adds that idea. You know, I'm going to knock the bow out of your left hand, and I'm going to knock the arrows out of your right hand. I'll, I'll disarm you is what he's saying. So not only does he say, I'm going to turn your swords against one another, he also says, I'm going to take your weapons completely away from you. You're not going to be able to use them against my people. So he adds just that little bit of detail. Then in, in the second thing, he talks about this feast for the birds and the animals on the bodies of the, 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 the conquered uh, invaders. Notice how similar that is to Revelation chapter 19, and we haven't talked about that in, yet in Revelation. We'll get there in a few weeks, but I want to read uh, chapter 19, verses 17 and 18 to you. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders and the flesh of all the people, free and slave, great and small. In fact, parts of that is a quote, essentially, from Ezekiel. If you want to know the reason why some scholars see the, the Ezekiel, Gog, and Magog passages as a you know, connection to the Battle of Armageddon, that is the main reason. Because John seems to quote Ezekiel and the events of, 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 of the Gog and Magog battle in the, the, the Armageddon battle, okay? As we looked, you know, last week and even, you know, before that, the week before that, the stronger kind of linguistic connection is with the battle at the end of the millennium. But there is, I'd mentioned it then, and I'm just pointing it out now, there is also a connection to the Battle of Armageddon. And that's why some scholars have kind of taken this combined view that it, it, 
you know, Gog and Magog is really a reference to essentially a campaign, a campaign by Satan and his followers, the people he convinces that will start before, you know, the, the millennial kingdom that, that will attack Israel and try to defeat God and God will defeat Satan, destroy the Antichrist and set up a millennial kingdom. And that is, is largely referenced here, a time of peace and safety for Israel when God will bring Israel to their, uh, their covenant peace. And at the end of that, Satan will be loosed again, and he will again go out and deceive the nations. And in chapter 20 of Revelation, it says Gog and Magog, and they will come against God's people again. So, you know, the people who hold to that position kind of see this as a campaign, a campaign that starts before the millennium and ends after the millennium because the person who is, in, you know, who really is behind this is Satan, and he's an eternal being. You know, he's not stuck in time, you know, and, and so he, uh, he, he lives on and on. He wasn't, a, a, you know, an uncreated being. He's a, he's a created being, but from that point on, he's a spirit. He doesn't, he doesn't die. Uh, and so he's able to come back a thousand years later and fight again. So that's, you know, the, the, that view, that's why that view uh, is out there. Okay, so I just want to point that out. Like I said, you know, none of these views are without flaws. Um, I think the strongest certainly is one of those three. It either, it's either connected to Armageddon or connected to the battle after the millennium. I do like this view because it has the strength of, of taking the strengths of both views and really doesn't have quite as many of their weaknesses. Uh, so I do think it's kind of a, a, an elegant solution to, to a problem. So just, uh, but just pointing that out, uh, uh, that's part of the evidence why some people take that view. We have another clue to that, and that is, uh, you know, in, in uh, this discussion here of, of the mountains of, of Israel. Um, you know, he says, I will bring you up against the, the mountains of, of Israel, uh, essentially that they will fall on Israel's mountains. I want to read you something. I, I, I didn't read this last week. I almost did, but I thought, you know, kind of wait till, till this week. Uh, it's a connection with Mount Tabor in, uh, in the Bible. It says here, and this is from the New American Commentary, it says, Gog will seek to loot and plunder those who have resettled Israel in the center of the land. And remember we read that last week, I told you that that word center is essentially the word for navel. Uh, it, it, you know, just kind of like your navel's at the middle of your body, the, the, this was at the center of the land. It's in verse 12 of chapter 38, uh, and I'll just read that for you here. It says, I will plunder and loot and turn my hand against the resettled uh, uh, ruins and the people gathered from the nations, rich in livestock and goods, living at the center of the land. And it's literally the, the word for navel, living at the navel of the land. It says, the word center is tabor, which means navel. Uh, it is similar to the name for Mount Tabor, uh, located in the north central uh, Israel, just north of the Valley of Jezreel, the same area it was associated with the Battle of Armageddon based on Revelation 16, 16. It's interesting that it's so close to, to you guys' name. 
Uh, you know, so interesting having you here today. <laughs> but, you know, that ancient word, Tabor, uh, meant navel. And that's where the, the name for Mount Tabor came from. It was, the, you know, kind of called that because it was like kind of at the center of the area. Well, let me jump over now to, um, to something else that uh, Dr. Cooper talks about uh, here uh, in regard to the same thing. It says, uh, another clue to fixing location of this battle is giving, given in verse 5. Gog will fall along with his army in the open field, verse 6. As noted in the discussion of chapter 38, verse 12, this event may take place near Mount Tabor in, the north central, uh, in north central Israel, where the valley of Jezreel is situated. This valley, which also was called the plain of Estrelon, uh, would certainly qualify for a large o open area suited for a battlefield. Um, I mentioned back, and this has been weeks ago, but when we first started talking about in chapter 16, the gathering of the armies uh, in Revelation for the battle of Armageddon. The Valley of Jezreel or the Plain of Estrelon, or, uh, or, you know, th that area... Uh, is the area that is most associated with the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, you know, it, it is a, a large uh, valley, and we'll read more about that here, uh, here shortly. Um, but there is kind of that association there. So again, if this does take place in Mount Tabor area, then we're looking at that basic valley there. Uh, near Mount Tabor, we're looking at the Valley of Jezreel, the, the plain of Estrelon, which is the same place we're looking at for the Battle of Armageddon. So again, that gives us uh, another clue that this might be connected to the Battle of Armageddon. So not only the, the, does, does John basically quote Ezekiel in, uh, in chapter 19 of Revelation, but then we also see a connection to uh, you know, the, the wording and the name uh, of the place that this battle of Gog and Magog will take place. Now, in verse 7, we see here it says, I will make known my holy name among my people Israel. I will no longer let my holy name be profaned, and the nations will know that I, am, uh, I the Lord, am the Holy One of Israel. Part of God's of what he is doing in this battle, he, he tells us, is to make his name known. Now, you know, that's, it, it's interesting for us because we think, well, they already know his name, don't they? But it's really more of a statement of the fact that even though they knew God as their God, they didn't really worship him as their God. They had profaned his name. They had, had committed adultery. They had sinned against God. And that's why they're in exile in the first place. Remember, the initial audience of this is, you know, the, the exiles. It's, it's, it's the Jews that are in Babylon, uh, and, and now, it, you know, toward the end of that, it becomes the Persian Empire once Babylon falls. So they're in exile, and they're in exile because of their own sin. And, and God is saying part of what he is going to do in, in, in this is he's going to show them that he's their God. He's essentially going to prove to them that he is who he has always said he was. Remember, we talked about that last week, that part of the aim of this is to show to them 
hey, I'm going to bring you into your covenant peace, but their natural question would be, well, man, everybody's always conquered us before. What's going to keep somebody from conquering us now, even though you say it's our, our covenant peace? And God say, okay, I'll show you. I'll bring the greatest army ever assembled up against you, and I'll destroy them before your eyes, and you will see that when I give you your covenant peace, no one will ever be able to take it from you. So again, we see that same stress here in, in verse 7, that what God is doing here is showing Israel, the people who are in exile, he's showing them that my promises are true. I'll keep my promises. Even though you sinned against me, I, I still you know, have made covenants with you, I've made promises with you, and you can count on me. And I'll show you you can count on me. I'll prove my name to you. I will no longer let it be profaned. Notice he also says, talks about the nations, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, I the Lord am the Holy One of Israel. So not only does he want the Jews themselves to understand that they can't profane his name anymore, that he is their God, and, and they need to, to worship him as their God, but the nations will no longer be able to come up against his people and profane his name either. Because he is going to fight the, the, the battle essentially to end all battles. And at the end of World War I, they, they called that the war to end all wars. Didn't, didn't happen. Uh, you know, this truly will be the war to end all wars. You know, God will put an end to to it you know at at the end of the millennial kingdom when he looses satan and and you know he goes out to deceive the nations one last time and that's what scripture says it will truly be one last time and god will fight the war to end all wars verse 8 stresses the certainty of its coming this is one of the things and this kind of gets to what rick had mentioned just a little bit ago um you know it's hard for us sometimes. I think one of the reasons we kind of want to always put end times in our own context, oh, it's got to happen now, you know, anytime somebody tells me that, I, they ask me, do you think it's going to happen in your lifetime? And I say no, and they look at me like, like I just grew like a horn out of the middle of my forehead. It's like, what? You don't believe that? It's like, no. Of, of all the, the, the generations in human history do you think I'm arrogant enough to say I think it's going to happen in the generation I'm alive? What, just the sheer odds of that are staggering. It's it, it just, you know, it, we get, you know, out of, uh, of there and a little bit of that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's, that's, the strength of that is you are living your faith moment by moment. And that's a wonderful thing. Uh, we just have to be really, really careful because then you end up, and I've known people have had this happen, they, they end up very kind of depressed and almost lost toward the end of their lives when it doesn't happen. And they're like, but it had to happen. And it's like, no, it didn't. It didn't. And, and so, uh, yeah, we, you're, you're absolutely right. We, we should live with an expectancy that God is going to do great things at any moment. But we should also live not trying to drag the newspapers into scripture and interpret scripture by the newspapers and unfortunately that's what happens all too often um but you know just a second it, it, it's like we 
you know, I, I get it. Like, part of that is it's hard for us to imagine. We look at the world around us and we think, my goodness, like, there's so many awful things happening. I, I, you know, it has to happen now, doesn't it? Because for the most part, we're, we're you know, we're centered on our own life, on our own times. I always tell people, I, I can only see the world through my eyes. I can't see it through yours. No matter how much I may empathize with you, I can't see the world through your eyes. And we're like that as a people. We, we view history, you know, we view time through our own lenses. You know, we're egocentric. Uh, you know, one of the great church history professors in modern times uh he had a a cartoon on 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 the 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 door of his office that one of his students had had given him and it was like this girl was writing a uh an essay on church history and she opened the essay by my pastor was born in such and such a year you guys get the idea that like our view of church history is only the view we know that we can see okay yeah rodney Yep, yep. Yep, exactly. Yep, yep, you're exactly right. And, and you know, we get ourselves in trouble when people start announcing dates and predicting, you know, exact dates of d different things. And, and we, you know, we've all seen this happen. We don't need to rehearse that. But um, it, it's, it's easy for us to lose the sense of certainty that these events will take place. Because we see the failings of people who've tried to predict, you know, when things will happen. I mean, Seventh-day Adventists, man, that, that started them and it even continues to some point today. That's why you see them doing so many prophecy conferences because it's kind of always trying to predict like when things will happen and one thing after another has failed. So when people see that, they're like, well, you know, this is never really going to happen. And we start to lose that sense of certainty. And you can tell God is dealing with that even with Israel. That the promises he made to them, maybe they're starting to doubt whether those things will ever take place. And look at what he says in verse 8. It is coming. It will surely take place, declares the sovereign Lord. This is the day I have spoken of. So he gives, in the midst of, of, of all of this, he gives this declaration. It's coming. Look, you know... I get it. You're probably wondering if it's ever going to take place. You're probably starting to doubt. I'm telling you it's coming. It will take place. I've promised this to you. This is the thing I spoke, I've spoke of. So it kind of gets to what Rick had asked about. Like, you know, there's, I'm sure the people were thinking, man, it, you know, it's got to be any time because they're just like us. But now we look back at this, and, and this was thousands of years ago. You know, so God's timing is way different than ours, and, and, and that's where we just need to have a lot more humility and faith, because that's what God's asking for. He's asking, just have faith, believe. I'm telling you, it's coming, so just hold on, even though all the people that this was written to would all be dead for thousands of years before this ever takes place. Just keep on having faith. Let's look at verses 9 through 16. 
Then those who live in the towns of Israel will go out and use the weapons for fuel and burn them up. The small and large shields, the bows and arrows, the war clubs and spears, for seven years they will use, use them for, for fuel. They will not need to gather wood for, from the fields or cut it from the forest because they will use the weapons for fuel. And they will plunder those who plundered them and loot those who looted them, declares the sovereign Lord. On that day, I will give Gog a burial place in Israel in the valley of those who, who travel east of the sea. And he, it will block the way of travelers because Gog and all of his hordes will be buried there. So it will be called the valley of Hamon Gog. For seven months, the Israelites will bury them in, in order to cleanse the land. And all the people of the land will bury them. And the day uh, I display my glory will be a memorable day for them, declares the sovereign Lord. People will be continually employed by cleansing the land. They will spread out across the land, and along with others, they will bury any bodies that are lying on the ground. After the seven months, they will declare out a more detailed search, or they will carry out a more detailed search. As they go through the land, anyone who sees a human bone will leave a marker beside it until the gravediggers bury it in the valley of Hamongog, near the town called Hamanoth. And so they will cleanse the land. Now, there's a lot going on in, in these, this handful of verses. The first thing that struck me as I was studying this was how detailed this is. I mean, it, man, you know, it's extraordinarily detailed. He's talking about if people find like a bone sticking out of the ground, they're going to put a marker on it, and people come along later and dig it up and bury it. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, I, I mean, what a detailed analysis of what is going to happen. And it really is problematic for those people who take this as nothing more than symbolic. We talked about that two weeks ago. That one of the approaches to Gog and Magog is that the whole thing is, is not a real battle, but it's just symbolic of how God will always defeat the enemies of his people. Well, the, one of the big problems, well, there's a couple big problems with that. One is just that approach to scripture. It, it, it's just not, yes, there are things that are certainly symbolic, and we see that in the study of end times. But for that as a, as a complete approach to Scripture is just not a sound approach. But one of the problems is, why in the world, if you were going to write a purely symbolic uh, you know, story in order to prove a larger point, hey, God will take care of his people, would you get that detailed? I wouldn't think. I mean, you're talking right down to like, hey, if there's a bone sticking up, put a marker on that bone. I mean, that, that's, you know... It's an absurd amount of detail for something if it's only going to be a symbol. So, you know, the first thing that just struck me as I was studying this was just how detailed this is. I kind of wrote a little title for this, this section here called Looting the Looter. The, the, you know, the, the, the first thing that you see here is, is they're going to use the, the, the weaponry and the equipment of the army, army that attacks them for fuel for the next seven years. You know, wow. That's kind of the ultimate looting. I, you know, you bring up, and we, we mentioned this last week, just the, the, in terms of their day, how extraordinary this army would have been, and size-wise, and, 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 you know, just the, the equipment they had, uh, you know, it... it we lose it a little bit today because we have modern weaponry and we look at this through a modern lens. But you have to remember, the first lens you have to look at Scripture is through the lens of the initial audience. 
Well, how would they have seen it? Oh my goodness, the scariest, biggest, most well-equipped army that's ever existed. And what happens to all that equipment and all that, all those arms and everything they thought was going to guarantee them victory? Jews are going to go out and gather it up and pitch it in the fire and burn it for, and it's going to be fuel for them. They're not going to have to cut down trees. They're not going to have to use use wood. They'll just burn up the equipment of all the people that were going to attack them. It's a pretty amazing thing. Seven years worth. No one will have to buy fuel or cut trees or, or whatever. They'll just burn up the equipment of those who came to loot them. The second part of verse 10, it says, and they will plunder those who plundered them and loot those who looted them, declares the sovereign Lord. One of the things we talked about last week in chapter 38 was it seems to be part of what uh, Gog wanted to accomplish was he saw the great wealth that the people had. If, if, if the events take place, if the final parts of this take place after the millennial kingdom, there's been a thousand years of peace on earth where God has, you know, in the person of Jesus Christ has been centered right there in Israel. And the peace that that has brought and the, the, the wealth and, and, and everything. And he, Gog, you know, darkness that, you know, we talked about there the other week, you know, looks at that and says, I want that. I want that for myself. Look at all of them. They're living in peace. They don't have any fear. They're not protected in any way. They don't have any walls up. They don't have any defenses. I can go in and I can take that loot. That's part of what is behind the human mind of the person that Satan motivates, whoever Gog may be. Possibly a name that just means darkness. So whoever that human is that kind of that God uses, and, and certainly before the tribulation, or I mean, excuse me, before the millennium, we associate that with the Antichrist. Part of the motivation is his own personal wealth, his own personal power, his own personal uh, plunder, and he thinks he can loot Israel. But God destroys him right at kind of at the gates of Israel, and they are able to just walk out into the fields and just plunder and loot the looter. And if you want to talk about an ultimate disgrace for someone, that's it. You know, God will not only bring about the, the uh, destruction of this person, but it will be so total that he will be looted himself, he and his army. Gog's burial place. Right, we are. We got about seven minutes here. Um, what is this burial place? Look at verse eleven. On that day, I will give Gog a burial place in Israel, in the valley of those who travel east of the sea. It will block the way of travelers because Gog and all his hordes will be buried there. So it will be called the Valley of Hamon Gog. This is one of the hotly debated topics in this study of Gog and Magog. Where is this place? What is this valley? Okay. Again, let me go to uh, Dr. Cooper's commentary here and, and, and read you a little bit about this, uh, this discussion. 
Second, the, the debacle will be such that a valley in Israel will be required as a graveyard for the slain soldiers of the army of Gog. The valley is not identified other than it was a route for those traveling eastward toward the sea. Most interpreters identify the sea as the Dead Sea, since it is the, the one sea that lies to the east of Israel, okay? Now, I don't know how familiar you guys are with a map. I should have actually brought a map, something to show you, but uh, the Dead Sea kind of lies kind of south and east of where the main body of, uh, of Israel is, kind of like, like that, um, you know, and so a lot of scholars believe since this says it's going toward the, to the east, toward the sea, that this is the only possible sea that it can mean, okay? So that's, that's why some pick the Dead Sea. Weber's notes that the use of the word travelers is similar to the name of the mountain uh, of, of, of northern Moab, Abarim, uh, with a large valley to the east side of the Dead Sea. He identified this valley in the central area east of the Dead Sea as the, as the valley of chapter 39, verse 11. He admits that this territory is outside the land of Israel. It was not part of post-exilic uh, Israel, but was part of the Davidic Empire. Yet the geographical location of this valley to the east of the Dead Sea creates the same problem as with Je Jezreel. It would be impossible to travel east toward the sea. That, that lies due west of the valley. So in other words, the geography doesn't work. You can't travel to the east, you know, if, if the sea is to the west. You know, not to get to the sea, not through that valley. Second, the size of this valley would accommodate neither the battle nor the burial mentioned in, in, in uh, chapter 39. The Jezreel Valley near Mount Tabor mentioned in the discussion of, uh, in verses 5 and 6 Six runs east-west, but the Mediterranean, or Great Sea, is at the western end, not the eastern end. East of the Jezreel Valley was the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee, which usually was called Lake Gennesaret and probably was not the Sea of verse 11. So where is this valley then, if none of the, the valleys seem to work? It actually has a, a pretty simple solution that a lot of scholars have kind of gone to. A simpler solution lies in translating east of the sea. This translation would allow for the traveler's movement east from the sea, which would be uh, to their rear. Then the sea could indeed be the Mediterranean and the valley, the Jezreel Valley. The Jezreel Valley is the only major east-west valley in Israel. It has at least three names, including the Valley of Jezreel, the Plain of Estrelon, and the Valley of Megiddo. And we've already talked about those as a possible site for this battle. And again, we see just a little bit more evidence for, for the connection between this and Armageddon. This valley was identified by the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 16, verses 13 through 16, as the location of the Battle of Armageddon. The valley is a natural battlefield and could even serve as a large graveyard, such as mentioned in verse 11. This site also has the proximity with Mount Tabor mentioned in chapter 38, verse 11, as the navel of the earth. At the time of the, uh, of the burial, the valley will be renamed the Valley of Hamon Gog, meaning the hordes of Gog. Remember we mentioned last week that he uses that term that he, he will bring up a horde of people against Israel, and so God will literally rename the valley the hordes of Gog. 
and it will just be a graveyard. Essentially, a valley as a graveyard. A city located in the valley will be named Hamanah, Hebrew for multitude, a reference to the scope of the destruction. That's a, really about all the time we have today. Um, we will actually finish this next week. Uh, we, you know, it, this, it was pretty ambitious to try to get this done, <laughs> get, get this done in, 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 uh, in one day. Um, next week we'll start with verses, verse 12 and, and, and handle the rest of the, of, of the passage. But uh, as I mentioned, there's a ton of stuff going on in, in chapter 39, and particularly in this passage, in, in, in verses 9 through 16. Um, a lot of things to, to talk about, but we'll, we'll kind of come back to the burial of, of, of the, this defeated army and the, and the importance of the cleansing of the land, because that's kind of the next part of this, is we see in verses 12 through 16 this is more than a burial, and we need to understand this, because again, we have to understand this and think it in a Jewish mindset, that what, what the, 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 the readers of the time, how they would have understood it. And it was enormously important in the law, in the Old Testament law, and to the Jewish people, you know, that, that there be ritual cleansing, you know, that, that things would be ritually clean, and dead bodies were unclean. Someone who, had, who took a Nazarite vow could not touch a dead body, could not essentially go to a funeral, not if they were near a body, because you were seen as unclean when you touched the dead. So, you know, this, this is usually important, and, and you're going to have tons of dead bodies, like thousands and thousands and thousands of them. So how is God going to clean his land? So that's, that's, that's really as much behind the burial as anything and behind the feast of the of the birds and the animals they are going to help they're going to be part of the cleaning crew okay so we'll talk about that next week we'll get more into the cleanliness part of this next week as we look at the burial of these people yeah rick Yeah, we'll we'll talk about Yep. Yep. We'll talk about that next week. Uh um I kind of mentioned just briefly but here a few weeks ago, but we'll we'll talk about that more uh next week. I'll get back into that. And and uh, as far as the other one, really that's kind of that's part of the reasons why scholars see this some scholars see this as a two-part battle where it's interesting how the Bible does this a lot of times. In, verse, in chapter 38, 
it seems like most of the events would be more like things that took place after the millennium. But chapter 39 kind of almost goes backwards, and it, it seems to connect things more like before the millennium. Because you're right, like the, this cleanup seems like more like something that would happen going into the millennial kingdom than it does at the end of the millennial kingdom. So again, that's part of the reasons why scholars, you know, some take the position, well, this is just Armageddon. But the problem they run into is John connects it with, you know, after the millennium in Revelation. So others say, well, no, it's just after, the, after that, but then you run into this problem. So the, like, like I said, kind of the more kind of elegant solution is it's really kind of a campaign instead of just a battle, and it starts before the, the, you know, the millennium and ends after the millennium. So that, that's kind of how they, de- they, you know, some deal with that. So, all right, let's uh, close in a word of prayer, and uh, you guys will be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for your word, and, and just, uh, Father, I, I'm glad that we find it interesting, that you want us, I believe, to, to look into your word and to, to wrestle with it. Uh, when we do that, we, our minds are on you and on things of you, and I just pray that you would help us to never lose that uh, sense of, of interest in, in being inquisitive when it comes to your word. But we do pray that you would give us humility. Uh, it is very easy to get lost in our own time and in the events that are happening in our own world and try to pigeonhole them into into your timing, Father. But your timing is always different than ours. And so help us just to trust you, uh, to to have faith in you from just a a daily living sense of faith uh, and know that you have this all handled and it will take place when you see fit to have it take place and, and it is all in your control. And so, Father, we just ask this in the name of your Son. We thank you for everything that you have done and everything you will do for us. And we ask it again in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everybody.